And we are going to be in the book of Philippians once again and chapter number 3. Philippians and chapter number 3. <clears throat> We've kind of been in the middle of a, I don't know, like a mini-series within the series um, as we've been talking about this idea of that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering, being made conformable unto His death. It's kind of a key verse of the whole book. And so we're dealing with some major themes here in the book of Philippians here in chapter 3. So if you find your place there and you're able to, let's stand together to honor the reading of God's Word. Philippians chapter number 3 and verse number 10. Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 10. It says this, "...that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His suffering, being made conformable unto His death." And you have the semicolon, just kind of, hey, we're carrying on the same sentence, the same idea in verse number 11. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus." Leave it to Paul to make something sound really wordy, but this is really good. This verse is just, mm, there's so much preaching there, I'm really looking forward to explaining it. Verse number 13, he says this, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So I'm titled the message uh, here tonight, Already, But Not Yet. Already, But Not Yet. All right. May God bless the reading of His Word. You can be seated. And thank you for standing in honor of the Scriptures here tonight. <clears throat> Cross country is not a sport. If Stephen Phillips is listening, I'm sorry for saying it, right? Uh, Cross-country is not a sport. It is torture in disguise. And those that go run for fun are weird. Now, I say all this in jest. I ran cross-country through junior high and a portion of high school the only reason I did is because it was the only way that they would let me play basketball. They were combined kind of together. If you're going to play basketball, you had to run cross country. So you had to endure cross country. Now, I ran in school, and I, I will literally tell you I hated every step of it. It was miserable, and now I find myself putting on running shoes every once in a while, going out running, and I don't know why. I just love to torture myself every once in a while. Uh, I do it because, hey, you need to exercise, you need to be healthy, so force yourself to do something you don't want to do. And then if, if you don't know the former associate pastor that was here for 17 years was Stephen Phillips, he does it for fun. 
he like goes to marathons and stuff, and he's running all over the place. He's just a psychopath. There's the only way to be able to describe it. And somebody who actually enjoys that kind of stuff. My first year of ever running cross country, I finished the longest run of my entire life in seventh grade. I, I ran forever and forever and forever. It's the longest I'd ever run. And then they stopped and they said, all right, we need to stretch now. That was the warm-up. And I knew I had signed up for the wrong athletic program at that moment. And uh, there were times during the school year we ran after school. I don't know why. We just loved the heat of Texas at that time. Cross country is like at the very first of the school year. And so we'd be out there and it would be like 100 degrees and we're out there running six miles you know, five, six miles, and it's cross-country, so that means you're out on roads, and out in the country, uh, in Springtown's where I went to high school and, and junior high and stuff, and boy, people fly around the roads and almost run you over, you know, and you get to one of the stops, and they're like, here's your little, like, fun cup of water. Don't drink it, though. Swish it and spit it and keep running. I think, I'm going to die out here. I literally thought I was going to die on those trips. It's just absolutely uh, awful in every aspect of that. Now, I bring up cross-country because I say this, uh, I enjoy sprints a lot more, right? Burn it out, run as fast as you can, and then it's just over, you're done. And oftentimes we view the Christian life as the sprints. We, we say, man, I just want to give it all I got, and I'm going to push real hard, and then it's just over with. But the Christian life really is more of a marathon. It's more cross-country than it is the sprint, that there is something about just the grind and putting one foot in front of the other and just keep on going. And honestly, that's what they tell you, a coach who would do cross-country. Um, if you've ever run any length or distance before, you've probably had like a, a cramp in your side, a side stitch before. You know, you get to that point where your legs literally are feel like jello and you're just done and tapped out. And so the, the coach... Always be standing on the sideline while you're running and can tell you're tapped out as like, just put one foot in front of the other, right? Just take the next step. Quit thinking about the next mile you have to run and just worry about the next step, right? Sometimes that's a great encouragement for us as Christians is we're running this long marathon and sometimes we can focus on the huge picture when sometimes God says, just take the next step. Just live for me today right? Just live for me the next hour. Just live for me the next 10 minutes, you know? And so instead of looking at this large picture of all these things that maybe you feel like I need to change all these things in my life and I need to get rid of all these bad habits and I need to start doing all these great habits. Sometimes God just wants you to say, I'm just going to do right, right now. And I'm just going to work on this one thing and I'm going to fix this one thing in my life, right? And so instead of it being a sprint, it really is a marathon we say it this way, a lifelong pursuit of Jesus Christ. Amen. Pursuing him who pursued us. That is the Christian life in a nutshell, the marathon. Now, just by way of uh, somewhat review here, uh, chapter 3 begins, rejoice in the Lord. Now, without just driving this into the ground, uh, into powder here, remember there's a huge difference between joy and happiness. Okay? Happiness depends on what happens. And it goes up and down and up and down and up and down. And so when things are good, you're happy. When things are bad, you're not happy. Anybody can do that. Joy places our contentment 
And, and it places our hope in something that it doesn't change. It's consistent and constant, immutable. And there's only one thing in all of history, all of time, all of the universe that is consistent and is perfect in all ways, and that is God himself. Amen. And so if you put your trust in anything else and you put your, your contentment and your satisfaction of soul in anything else, it's going to be happiness because it's going to be volatile. It's going to go up and it's going to go down, right? But if you put it in, in Christ, he does not change. And so that means the only place you can find joy is in Jesus. That, that's it. He has a monopoly on it. You will find joy in nothing else. You ever want to do some research on that? Read the book of Ecclesiastes. Yeah. There's a man named Solomon who had all the money. He had all the wisdom. He had every opportunity to explore life, as he says, under the sun. Which simply means this. He lived in this world a life apart from God. And he tried to find satisfaction, contentment, joy in everything else. Solomon tried money. He was the wealthiest dude at the time. He had all the money he could ever want. He tried women. He had hundreds of wives. And since that didn't satisfy, he had hundreds more concubines. Totaled up to almost about a thousand of them. No satisfaction there. I don't know why he thought that would bring satisfaction, but he just kept trying. Well, that one didn't do it. Let's try another one, right? But pick on Solomon. Some people do that nowadays, don't they? Well, that one didn't work. They're not making me happy, so I'm out of that one. I'm into this one. Yep. Move, move, move. Okay, Solomon came to the conclusion of the whole matter, and he says this. There's only one thing that will bring joy in your life. Fear God and keep His Amen. commandments. That's the whole duty of man. He said all this other stuff really is just worthless. There's nothing good to it. So Paul starts the message, he says this, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because there were those, the Judaizers, who were saying your joy should be based in your works, work-based salvation. So they believed you needed Jesus plus works in order to be saved. And so what they were doing is they were uh, trying to frustrate grace, would be how it's described in the book of Romans, is that they were adding things to salvation, trying to earn their way to God. And Paul here reminds them, what a miserable life to live. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about something that will sap the joy out of your life, try to earn your way to God instead of just resting in the complete work of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's a frustrating life. And so Paul says here, don't listen to those joy stealers. And there's a lot of joy stealers in life. Rejoice in the Lord is a reminder of that. Okay. So then he goes on, and we talked about this even uh, last week. In the following verses, starting, I believe, in verse number five or verse number six, and he starts to talk about uh, what he found in Jesus Christ. So he talks about the difference of gain and loss. And so he says in verse number eight, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. So he, he takes it a step further here and he says, if the Judaizers think they can earn their way to God by their works, they got nothing on me. And he goes through and he starts listing off all of his accomplishments that at one time Paul walked around and he said, that's right. That's me, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. He gives eight things, and he's sitting there, and when he was 
on the fast track to the Sanhedrin. I mean, this guy was the who's who's of a religious magazine in Israel. I mean, he was on the fast track. And he had all the pedigree. He had all of the resume until Acts 9 happened. Amen. And he's on his way to Damascus and a bright light shines round about him. Saul, Saul, why kickest thou against the bricks? It's hard for you to do that, isn't it? And at that moment, Saul was confronted with this reality. The Christ, Jesus, really is the only way of salvation. And so Paul saw everything that he had put great value in, and he saw it for what it really was. All of that stuff didn't change. Paul's eyes were just open to what it really was. And he describes it this way, dung. He was carrying around wheelbarrows full of poo, and he was saying, this is worth lots of money. And then his eyes got open and he goes, what am I doing? Why, why do I have this in my gain column? Like it's some great asset. It really is loss. What really is gain is Jesus Christ. And Paul came to the conclusion the only way to experience the excellency of Christ in salvation was to let go of all the stuff he was trying to do to earn salvation. Well, that'll preach in our modern world right now. Yes. There are people all over Bridgeport and all over Wise County that are trying to work their way to God. Yep. And they're trying to have their good works outweigh their bad works. And, and they're saying, well, it, it's got to be more complicated than just believe in Jesus. And so they frustrate grace. They add works to salvation. And Paul simply says this, what you're holding on to and what you're trying to bring before God, the Old Testament in Jeremiah would describe this way, filthy rags. And Paul describes it here in the New Testament as this, dung. And you think there's some kind of great value into it. And he says, no, 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 put it where it truly belongs, in the lost column. And what really matters is the excellency of Jesus Christ. See Jesus for who he really is. I say it over and over and over again at the top of my voice and never get tired of saying it. There ain't nothing better that's happened in my life than Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. It's bad grammar, but it makes perfect sense. Ain't nothing better than Jesus. There never will be anything better than Jesus. Jesus is everything. And everything else is loss. Now again, you can take this a step further. Paul talks about salvation but since I've gotten saved, I've started to realize this. There's a lot of things that I think are valuable in my life that really have very little value. And if God would help me open my eyes and realize, I need to lay aside some things so that I can experience more Jesus. Amen. You're not going to get any more saved than you already are. But God has some things that He wants to work out of you. And so that's where Paul goes in these verses. In verses 10 through 14... He talks about, now that I am saved, what does the saved life look like as Paul starts realizing there's some things in my gain column that need to be in my loss column? And what does it look like to take those things that really need to be in the loss column and take them from the gain to the loss so that he can experience more Jesus? What does that look like? So that's what these verses ultimately boil down to and what they really start to deal with. Now... <clears throat> Paul got a taste of something good in Jesus. In verse number 9, he talks about that. He says, "...to be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness of God, which is of God by faith." So Paul realized this, 
I've been trying to get my own righteousness, and that wasn't any good, but God's righteousness is really good. And he experienced that at salvation. So this is so amazing. Got the Holy Spirit, right? Paul started preaching, started telling other people about Jesus, started experiencing what already was there. So Paul in these verses is not talking about getting more saved. He's going to start talking about mining out all of the gold that he got with Jesus when he got saved. Okay, so we got a taste of something good. So I wanted to do this. I got a little bit of a video uh, here tonight that I'm going to show you because I love my children and they do goofy things sometimes. If you've had children, you've done this before. What parent in here has ever fed their child a food for the first time when they were a baby and enjoyed the reactions? You know what I'm talking about. Okay. Okay, go ahead and show them the video. This is Nate when he was a baby. All right, now it was fun doing the limit. Okay, y'all, y'all did this when you were parents too. Don't act like you didn't. This, and it's always the dad that does it. Okay, some of y'all moms like, no, it was me. Evie was always trying to be kind. I was always the one trying to be cruel. My dad, though, on all four of our kids, on all four of them, he was the first one who introduced ice cream. That one's fun, right? First time a kid gets a taste of that. Because, you know, a little baby, they just kind of eat whatever you put in front of them. They're used to eating protein mush. Blah, you know? It's nasty stuff. And, and then you put something like ice cream in front of them. It first hits their lips and they go, oh, I don't like that. It's cold. I wasn't expecting that. And then the sugar kicks in. And then they're just like, whoa, that is awesome. And, and, and then it becomes this thing like, uh, they're just going after it and they just want it, right? Baby, when you feed them a cake on their first birthday, our kids, that was the first time they had cake. So it starts out this way. You almost have to put it on their face so they, and then they're just, and they just start shoveling it in and diving their face in. Why? Well, they got to taste of something good. And so they said, I got to taste something good. I want some more of that. Now, the problem with sugar, though, is it's not really good for you, right? It tastes good. Here's the thing. You get a taste of Jesus, you realize this. It not only tastes good. Follow the metaphor here. It not only tastes good, but it's good for you. And and so you start to realize, wow, I can have fun as a Christian and there's no hangover. Actually, you can have more fun as a Christian than the world can have. And then the fallout or the consequences from it are good. It's just baffling to me that the world thinks they're having a good time. I'm like, have you ever lived for Jesus before? It's awesome. Have, I think I have more fun with my family at our house uh, on a Saturday night playing a board game or hanging out as a family or singing gospel songs or whatever than the world ever could imagine having. It's awesome. It's, it's so much fun to live for the Lord. I say this, you get a taste of something good and you want more of it. And so Paul here says this, I, I got a taste of something when I got saved. 
a, a big taste of something. Jesus moved in my life. Old things passed away. All things became new. So then Paul said this, all I want is more Jesus. He is so good, all I want is more of Him. So he describes this in verse number 10, which is really the key verse of the whole book. He mentions two things here about this experience of Christ, like what it is to taste and see that the Lord is good. What does that really look like? So Paul says, I want to know Him. And then he says two things. I want to know the power of His resurrection. So he said it this way, Paul wants to experience in his life the power that Christ alone has. Well, what better demonstration of Christ's power than his resurrection? Power over death, power over hell, power over sin, power over the grave, power over Satan. I mean, you talk about the power that was contained in the resurrection, a pure demonstration of God's power. Now, of course, he mentions here he wants to know the power of his resurrection. Uh, part of the, the aspect of resurrection is when Christ resurrected from the dead, he finished the work that was required for us to be saved. So Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, and then he resurrected so that we would have victory over sin. Without the resurrection, there's no salvation. The Bible is very clear about this. Unless Christ be risen from the dead, you're dead and your trespasses is saved. You have no salvation without the resurrection. So Paul, in talking about the power of the resurrection, talks about this. It's the experience of salvation in that resurrection. Also, in the fact that Christ is resurrected, another part of the power of that is now sanctification. Not only can I be saved because Christ resurrected from the dead, but I also now have everything I need to live for Him. Get the Holy Spirit. I got a New Testament church. I got a Bible. I've got uh, other believers that sharpen me like iron sharpens iron. God has given us everything we need to be everything He intends us to be. And so Paul says, hey, this is a, a process of sanctification. Every day become more and more like Jesus. And the power of the resurrection demonstrates this. God's power is not sufficient just enough to save you. It's sufficient enough to sanctify you. This, that's some incredible power that has, Christ has there in his resurrection. And Paul says he obviously wants to be a part of this resurrection. Verse number 11, he says, If by any means I might attain into the resurrection. It might sound like Paul's like got this wishful thinking, like I hope I'm good enough. But if you read it in its context, Paul just already obliterated any idea of that. Right? That's why context matters so much. If you read chapter 3, he's already said, there's a complete work of Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. It's not by works. It's all by faith in the Lord and by grace. He's already made that very clear. So obviously he's not saying here, well, I hope I make it. Well, I hope I'm good enough. Because that, that, that's not the context of what he's dealing with here. So what is he talking about here? Well, Paul here is talking about an aspect of humility. He's saying this, if anyone shouldn't go to heaven, it's me. I, I, I am the worst of all sinners. That's funny because earlier in the chapter he was talking about all the good stuff, but then he realized what that was worth, dung, and then he started to realize, I have persecuted Christians, I've put them to death, I, I've done all kinds of things in the name of God against Christ Jesus. And he starts to realize this, I don't deserve to be a part of that resurrection, but God saved even me. It's a, it's a humbling thing for him to recognize that. So he talks about the power of his resurrection. I want to know Christ 
Because I understand this, if he has the power to save me and sanctify me, I want more of that power in my life. And then he says this, I want to know Christ because I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Do you know, uh, just kind of do this as a personal testimony. You just think in your mind. Do you feel a deeper need to pray and read your Bible and seek Jesus Christ when things are really, really good or when they're really, really bad? Don't answer that. Just think in your mind. I know for me, it's usually when things are really, really bad. I feel a need of him that I don't feel when everything's great. When the bank account's full, when there's no uh, medical needs, everything. I'm telling you, you go in the hospital and it's, hey, your spouse is about to die unexpectedly. Or, hey, somebody just wiped out your life savings. I mean, at that moment, you feel this great need of, Father, I need you right now. Here's what Paul was saying. I know there's power in Jesus Christ, but I also know this. I want to be associated with suffering because in the midst of suffering, I get more Jesus. So, so Paul's whole pursuit of this thing, he says, that I may know him. Well, what do I need to know him? Well, what is this whole pursuit of knowing Jesus more? Move things from the gain column to the loss column because I want to know him better. Well, it, it's connected with this. I want to know his power because his power wasn't good enough just to save me. It's good enough for everything I need. And I also understand this, that I want to know the fellowship of his suffering because it's in those times of suffering that I am made conformable unto his death. I'm more like Jesus in those moments than at any other point. So God, if it takes trials in my life to make me more like you and to get more of you, bring it on. Be careful praying that though. Right? But sometimes I think in the midst of our trials, we get a bad attitude sometimes and we go, God, this isn't fair. What are you doing? Ugh, this is so... And we get mad at him. If we just stop and go to the altar and say, God, I don't know what you're trying to show me through this trial. And it's really hard. But I do know this. If through this trial I can be made better and I can be more like you, lay it on me. I wonder if in those moments God see that and actually bless us with it. Man, an attitude shift in, in the midst of trial. So that's where Paul's at with this. He says, God, help me to have this right attitude of knowing you. So again, we're, we're running out of time here, but I, I do want to define, because he goes on in the following verses, and he says in verse number 12 that he hasn't already attained, and he's not perfect. So the word perfect there, of course, deals with maturity. So Paul's dealing with this. I, I, I'm not a perfect Christian yet. I'm not exactly like Jesus. You say, can someone get that way? No. <laughs> uh, there's maybe some more theology behind that a little bit, but I'll say this. We are always continually growing. There's always areas of improvement and always things that God wants to do to make us better. And so Paul says this, I've made it a long way in my Christian life since I first got saved, and I'm more like Jesus today than I was when I first got saved, but I'm not there yet. I'm not perfect yet. I have not attained unto knowing him like I want to yet. There's still some things in my gang column that need to be moved to the lost column so that I can know him more intimately. So Paul's saying here, I haven't fully got there with everything that needs to happen yet. 
So he then ends the verse and he says this, If that I may apprehend that for which I also am apprehended of Christ Jesus. He said, well, it's a mouthful. Okay, so let me illustrate this a little bit. Paul, we'll start with Paul, then we'll go to us. Paul was not pursuing Jesus. Before he got saved, Paul was not pursuing Jesus Christ when he was Saul of Tarsus, right? Instead, he was hauling Christians into jail and putting them to death and all kinds of stuff. Okay? Who pursued Paul? Jesus. Jesus did. That bright light that shone around about him and said, what are you doing, man? Why are you living this hard life when grace is available for you? That was Jesus. Now, come to our world for a little bit here. I wish I could say that I was just out there even as a young boy. I got saved when I was five. Thankful for being a part of a Christian home. I was saved from a lot of things, not out of a lot of things. I'm thankful for that. But, but I'll say this, especially for those of you that maybe got saved a little later in life as a teenager, an adult, whatever the case might be. I'll say this. There probably wasn't this pursuit of God in your life where you were out there and you were just like, I just need Jesus, and so what do I need to do? And then in your pursuit of Jesus, the gospel became evident to you. Now, for some, that, I guess it could be the case that they, something happened and they began to seek out religious things. Most people are in hot pursuit of everything but Jesus. And then they're confronted with the gospel. And what a wonderful confrontation it is. Amen. The gospel will always be confrontational. You say, well, I don't believe in confrontational soul winning. Well, sorry, there's no other form. <laughs> I mean, it's just by nature of it. Now, I understand what, they, what people mean by that. I begin to people, you're going to burn in hell. Oh, come turn or burn, you know. And I understand where people are coming from with that. But I also understand this. The gospel is confrontational in this way, that it is calling people to turn from believing in themselves and believing in their good works, and turning from their sin to the excellency of Christ. Right? We're not talking about a work-based salvation here, but a person must believe in Christ in order to be saved. Okay? Sometimes we, people call it easy believism. They just say, uh, well, you believe in Jesus, don't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, one, two, three, repeat after me. All right, brother, you're saved. And we'll just move down the road. Okay, that's not how salvation is presented in the Scriptures, is that there has to be a conviction of sin and then a realization I, I, I need I can't live in sin and go to heaven and a realization I can't work my way to heaven and they turn it's called repentance it's a change of mind not a change of action okay repentance then repentance from sin and from going our own way and turning to Christ and and, and that's that is required for a person to be saved they must believe in Jesus Belief in Jesus then is in turn rejecting all others, right? And all other methods of ways of get to God and believing in Him exclusively, okay? And so, anyways, what Paul is presenting here, even in, in this passage of Scripture, is he's saying, listen, I got, I got Jesus Christ came and confronted me in my sin. And in that confrontation, I had a choice. Continue to reject Jesus or turn and believe in Jesus. And Paul chose to believe in Jesus Christ. He was apprehended by Jesus Christ. 
He was pursued by Jesus Christ. We love Him because He first loved us. Come on now. Humanity wasn't sitting down here saying, God, please send your Son to die for our sins. Even while we were yet sinners, God commended His love towards us. He showed His love towards us while we were sinners. We were not in hot pursuit of God. God was in hot pursuit of us. And I'm so grateful when I was undeserving and unworthy and not even looking for God, He was looking for me. And I'm so grateful that somebody loved me enough to show me the gospel and confront me with the truth that God loved me and I was apprehended of Jesus Christ as a five-year-old boy. I don't know what your testimony is. If you've never trusted in Christ, today is the day of salvation. Christ is looking for you. And He died to save you from your sins. Now here's what Paul says. I got apprehended by Christ, so now I'm spending the rest of my life apprehending Him. Okay, you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it simply means this. Paul was kind of running his own thing, and Christ came up and apprehended him. Right? We don't believe in Calvinism, but he was confronted with the gospel, and Paul had to make a choice, believe or reject, run away from Christ or embrace him. And Paul was apprehended of Christ. He said, I believe. So now Paul spends the rest of his life saying this, I'm in hot pursuit of Jesus. He came after me, now I'm going after him. We say, well, what does that look like? Well, Paul, thankfully, he describes in the next few verses some things that happen. He says, forgetting those things which are behind. Well, what does that mean? Well, Paul had a pretty messed up view of God and pretty messed up work-based salvation attitude, and he killed Christians, literally put them to death. And here's what he says, if I'm going to apprehend Christ and I'm going to go all after him, There's some things that Satan wants to bring up of my past that I need to just forget about. They're under the blood and just let it be under the blood. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times in my life where my old flesh and Satan loves to bring up the past. He loves to stir up the coals of the past and loves to bring up things that you've done wrong and wrong thoughts and wrong attitudes and wrong actions and loves to bring those things up And it's a great reminder that Paul says this. Listen, you maybe can't help those things being brought up, but pray that God will help you to forget those things. Put them in the past, put them under the blood, and then pursue Jesus Christ. That's kind of the first step of this whole thing. Let's read these. I don't want to just try to quote them because I'm going to totally mess them up. Okay. He says this in verse number 13, forgetting, about halfway through the verse, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Well, what is that? Well, he says in verse number 14, uh, 14, I press toward the mark. Now, this idea of turning, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing towards a mark, moving forward of those things that are ahead with Christ, it kind of has this idea, there is something that is marked ahead, a single fixed point, marking something and pressing toward that. Pressing toward the mark. Singular focus. Matthew 6 describes this. He says, if your eye be evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. But if your eye be good, then your whole body will be full of light. I have corrective lenses, thanks to you people. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't have glasses before I moved to Bridgeport. I moved here and then I need glasses. But you get corrective lenses. Well, why is that? Well, You're either nearsighted or farsighted because the light comes in either too soon or too late. 
in your eyes. It doesn't hit your cornea in the back at a perfect center point. So corrective lenses make it where that light then hits like it's supposed to. It helps with your nearsighted or far. That's all that verse is dealing with. If your eye doesn't hit one point, it's not full of light, and then your eye is evil. You can't see clearly. Things are fuzzy. But if your eye is full of light, hits at that singular point corner, you have perfect 20-20 vision. Well, what's the whole point of what Jesus is talking about there? Well, he says this, pursue God singularly, and then God will take care of all these peripheral things. You read Matthew 6, this is exactly what he's talking about. Now, Paul talks about that exact same thing here. Paul says this, the pursuit of my life has become one thing and one thing only, Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm running hard after that. I'm apprehending that, that for which I was apprehended, Jesus. I'm going hard after that, and I am pressing towards a mark. I have put a point, and that point is Jesus, and that's what I'm pressing toward. So everything in Paul's life became central to that movement to that point. So the question here tonight is, do the activities and actions of your life, do they move you toward that mark of Christ or not? What's the pursuit of your life? What, what do you, is it money? Is it fame? Is it a relationship? What, what, are, what are you pursuing after? Be honest with you. What's, what's the pursuit? Paul said this, my pursuit has become this, Jesus. I forget those things which are behind. I'm pressing toward the mark, the excellency of Christ Jesus. A third thing here, and we'll wrap up this um, passage of scripture is he uses the analogy of a race he says i press through the mark of the high price of the of the high calling of god in christ jesus he uses this idea of a race and prizes to be won at the end of a race now again i believe cross country is torture physically spiritually is what god's called us to be a part of He's called you to every day run the race with patience that's set before you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Lay aside every weight, run with patience the race that's set before you. Here it is. Press toward the mark. There's the finish line. It's Jesus. So here it is. Every day, take another step. If you look at the whole span of the Christian life, you will get discouraged. But I'm going to encourage you. You've already put some steps behind you. You might have got off track. That's really discouraging when you're running across country meet and the lead car takes you down the wrong route. <laughs> I just ran a mile for nothing, right? Sometimes in our life we feel that way. I, I went down the wrong path and I went down where God didn't want me to be. Forget those things which are behind. There's some race to be run still ahead of you. Get back on course, on track. And here's the thing. Run the race today. Amen. Well, what about tomorrow? Well, there's enough evil tomorrow to deal with tomorrow. Again, Matthew 6. But God's grace is sufficient for today. So run the race that's set before you today. Press toward that mark. And then here it is. The next day when you get up, run that race again. And the next day, run that race again. Will you stumble and fall? Yes. What's the mark of a righteous man? Not that he never falls. It's that he always gets back up. God wants you to just perpetually and continually always be moving in the right direction. You may get off course, you may stumble, you may fall, but go hard after apprehend that for which you were apprehended, which is Jesus Christ. Listen, if you've got a taste of something good in Jesus, go get more. Yeah. 
Go get more. And I'm telling you, you will taste and see that the Lord is good. Start every day, roll out of bed and just say this. This is the day that the Lord hath made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. It might not be everything I want it to be, but I'm going to live for Jesus today. And then I'm going to live for Jesus today. I live for Jesus today. We're already saved, but we haven't apprehended everything with salvation yet. God still has more things that He wants us to experience and enjoy about Him. So we say this, that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering. Let's all stand together as we come to a time of invitation here tonight. <clears throat> hope the Lord's spoken to you this evening. There are some things that probably you need to forget tonight. Achievements, even good things in the past. Failures. Forget those things that are behind and press toward the prize, the finish. Well done, now good and faithful servant. So Father, we come to you now we say, Lord, we thank you for all the blessings you've earned. Thank you for salvation. Lord, if there's one here tonight that doesn't know you as personal Savior, Lord, may they be saved tonight. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity not only to be saved, but then to dig out all the riches that we got in salvation. And uh, Lord, I pray that every day would be a hot pursuit an, an apprehending of that which we were apprehended by. And so, Father, may you bless these, your Christians, or these, your believers. Uh, Lord, they need your grace and your help every day to live for you. And so, Father, bless them and help them. Lord, we love you. It's in your name we do pray. As music.